0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded.
1: Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits podcast. I am not your host, but in fact, your producer, Lexi Linger. I'm stepping in today to interview a friend and former coworker, Kelsey Smith. Kelsey and I worked together at New American Pathways many years ago. At this point, it almost seems like a lifetime ago. Kelsey was brought in specifically to work on New American Pathways ESL program, and the impetus for that was an individual donor who took an interest in that and in the New American Pathways ESL classes. And so Kelsey came in to work on those classes and grow those classes. And I just want to say I was so impressed with Kelsey and the energy she brought to her task and her bravery in creating what today is the English at Home program. So I wanted her to come on today and talk about how she got this program started from ESL classes into what it is today is the English at Home program and how she made it sustainable, because it is still an amazing, strong program, even though Kelsey has moved on to other things. But first, I just want to remind everybody that while we are recording in August, this episode is probably releasing in September or October, which means we're getting close to the time of year when a lot of nonprofits are starting to think about their strategic planning. If you are thinking you wanna embark on a strategic planning journey, go ahead and reach out. You can find details about our planning process and get in touch with us on our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Kelsey, I am so pumped to be chatting with you today and it is COVID, Delta's going on. I haven't actually seen you in a while. So it's really awesome to see you even though it's just on Zoom. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So I thought we'd get started with a story you shared with me earlier about a Somali student and her journey to reading.
2: Yes, this is my go-to story when sharing about this program and honestly about my career at New American Pathways, which I absolutely loved. I had a student who was 24 years old, and before she walked in the door of my classroom at New American Pathways, she had never been to school. And when she came in, she spoke no English and did not read in English or in her native language of Somali. This was a new experience for me as an ESL teacher. I had worked with people of all different kinds of language levels, but she was one of my first what, what we call preliterate students, meaning that she was not literate in her native language or in the English I was trying to teach her. And so we worked together with very dogged determination for about three months. I made, borrowed and made a sort of set of sight words with images embedded within them called pictographs that helped her learn a lot of the sight words in English while I was also teaching her spoken English. And at the end of three months, I sat down beside her one day with a small children's book and she read the whole book by herself. It still makes me tear up telling this story this many years later because it was the first book she ever read in her life at the age of 24 in a language that she did not yet speak. And so as I am sitting beside her weeping and celebrating, and I said, I am so proud of you, she just grinned at me and she said, teacher's so happy. And I said, I am so happy. And the next day she called her caseworker, who was Somali, and she said in English, I read English, I speak English, get me job now. And the recruiter did, <laughs> she said, okay. Uh, because she was a single woman having to take, do her own income as well as learn English. She got her a job, which was a night shift job. And she still was faithful to come to my ESL classes three days a week and study English on those mornings and then go work at night. Just that spirit of determinism and that courage I don't know that I could do that if you dropped me in another country and told me to learn this language and figure all of this out. It would be overwhelming. And so I just really admired her for that. I've never been able to forget that experience.
1: Yeah, that's a really amazing story. And obviously you and I both have a passion for working with refugees and refugee resettlement. And I know that's not what today's episode is about, so I don't want us to get too sidetracked, but thank you for sharing that really wonderful, lovely story. So you had an ESL background when you came into New American Pathways, and I mentioned a little bit about what you were brought in to do, but could you give us a little more detail about what you were brought in to do?
2: Absolutely. So when I was brought in, there were and still are many ESL classes existing in the community around the resettlement agency in the Clarkson area and that greater area. However, again and again, the issue that often faces newly arrived refugee clients is transportation and accessibility to resources. And so the resettlement staff had recognized that many of our clients were struggling to get to the ESL classes. It also had to do with scheduling. And so the idea was proposed, and a donor who was also very interested in providing English services thought, well, if they could have the classes at our office where they already have to come for appointments, which is also much more accessible by MARTA, perhaps that would solve all of those problems. So they brought me in, and I designed a series of classes for students of different English levels and offered at different times to see if this could be the solution to providing our students more access to the English classes. So originally, I was not brought in for English at home. It didn't really quite exist yet. It was for classes within the resettlement office.
1: So I should note, listeners, that Kelsey and I are recording in Atlanta. So we're talking about Clarkston, Georgia. And MARTA is our local bus and train public transportation system. And Kelsey, did you find after some time doing those ESL courses that that was the right way to meet the community's needs? I actually did not.
2: I faced the exact same problems that had been existing that brought me into the program. My clients, although they loved the classes and they made great progress, frequently could not come to class, work schedules. There was no child care offered. That was the number one problem. It was the mothers who were so often being left behind in learning English because there was no option for child care. And we all know that Childcare is an expensive, it's an expensive commodity, an expensive resource that many people need and struggle to get. And so for our clients, it was especially so, and it was effectively preventing them from attending the classes. So after doing some brainstorming, analyzing research, talking to a lot of people within the agency, talking to clients, talking to other English resources, I went to the agency, to our CEO, and I proposed to take an at-home English model that we already had. It had existed for some time, but was very small. I proposed taking that and putting our resources into expanding that fully, switching away from the classes that were not really able to serve very many people, and putting our effort, focus, time, money into at home based English services. So that that model looks like training volunteers to teach English and in the format of reporting that kind of thing and matching them with refugee clients so that the volunteers go to their homes, usually once a week, sometimes more and teach them English in their homes. That became a very popular program with the clients and with the volunteers. We had a huge amount of success with switching to that format.
1: So I want to back up a little bit. So you did research on a different format and you went back to your CEO. How did you guys approach the donor?
2: Yes. So I will say something that I do admire about New American Pathways is they are very good at building relationships with their donors. They make that a high priority. And so they had already the established relationship and communication with the donor to then be able to go and approach it with the research that I had done. Analyzing the data I was getting from the classes I was doing as well as the needs of the community and proposed this altered solution. And thankfully, the donor was very excited about it because that person recognized the need which I also really appreciated. It was not about the format or the packaging that the service was delivered in. It was, can this be accessible to the client? And when it was not in the classroom format, thankfully they were not married to the classroom format. That wasn't the point. They were excited to hear that we found a way to offer the services that were so needed in a way that was finally accessible to those who needed it most and who were usually being passed over in the other forms of service, which again, most often is mothers of children.
1: I know I said it before, but I just think that's so brave that you took the initiative to do the research, go to your CEO and that then combined, you guys went back to the donor and put at risk really losing money, right? and and I just think that's so amazing and shows the dedication that nonprofits really should have to their communities and to their clients and making sure that they are providing the correct service and the correct format for the community. And I, I just so admire that about you. And I was impressed uh, that you did that from the get-go, you know, from our the beginnings of our friendship that has always stuck with me about you. And also, you know, kudos to that donor. That's something... That we talk a lot about, especially in the refugee resettlement community, that there's some really great donors out there, but they are, as you said, married to their idea. And it can be very, very hard to convince a donor to change their plans and their minds and let go of their ideas so that the service is, is really actually what the community and what the client needs. So that's really amazing.
2: Absolutely. And I think it speaks, again, just to the importance of doing the research and knowing the community, which, again, is something I admire. It's about this nonprofit and many nonprofits, that the whole point is the clients. It's not us or our work and it's not the donors either. It's the clients. And so if it's not working, we need to be able to show that in actual data Um, with good reasons for why we want to pivot and try something new. And again, just very thankful that they also trusted me that much. That was a big deal. (laughs) And I've never um, taken that for granted or gotten over how much trust they gave me as a new person in the agency, too, to come in and redesign that program and be given the opportunity to launch it in that way. It was a really exciting experience to be a part of.
1: Yeah. And before we move on to that side of the story, You know, you mentioned that you that the importance of doing the research and definitely not only did you just come and say, hey, this is broken and not working, but I also have a proposal for what we can try next. And you also mentioned something else that caught my attention was that new American Pathways already had a strong relationship with this donor, which made it so much easier for you all to come back and say, hey, we need to look at this a little differently.
2: Absolutely, and after all, you know, community building is about everyone in the community and the donors are no less part of the community than anyone else within it. And so just recognizing that, that these are people who really want to be involved and we need all levels of involvement, whether donors or volunteers or anyone in between. So just acknowledging that the donor was a vital part of the work and that their heart was very clearly there for the clients just made that so much easier. And they knew that because they'd taken the time to get to know the donor.
1: Absolutely. So can you walk us through the next couple of phases? You know, how did you take that research and pivot and start developing and growing this program? And how did you make that sustainable beyond yourself? Absolutely. So, again, I love
2: language and I had my background, as you mentioned, in ESOL before that. I had gotten my CELTA certificate through the University of Cambridge and had taught overseas. And so, taking what I knew of those things and basically, especially how the adult mind learns, which is many similarities to childhood education, but also some significant differences. I combined that also with what I was learning of our clients. And I was very, very blessed to be able to work with clients from so many places, but also coworkers who knew our clients so well, uh, many times because they were also from those same countries and cultures and could give me a lot of insight into what was appropriate uh, as far as offering services to these clients, what perhaps they were used to, what they were not used to, what would be the best format to be acceptable to them and empowering to them. That was something I was very adamant about. And so it was a journey. Again, this this program already existed in a very small form. And so I decided to look into providing a more rigorous training for our volunteers. Prior to that, there wasn't a training per se. They might have met with one AmeriCorps member and talked for a few minutes and then didn't even really have a curriculum to use when teaching ESOL. And I thought, oh my goodness, these volunteers are so brave. They're walking in with not a whole lot, um, with just a really big heart wanting to help people learn English. And so I took the time to write curriculums. I wrote three um, for the different levels that we put the, the clients into. I did research and put together assessments so that we could track levels and improvement and have data to show that our program was working was making a difference. And then I've designed a volunteer training orientation that not only told how the program worked, but how to actually teach the clients. So highlighting best practices in ESOL, but also including elements specific to teaching people who have had to flee their home country and start over in a new one, having some trauma informed information in there, having also the perspective of you're working with adults who desperately need English very quickly in order to function. And so how teaching these adults might be different than, it's actually very different than how you would teach a child. We don't start with the fat cat sat on the mat because we don't care about the cat or the mat. And that's not necessarily um, dignifying or exciting for an adult, but we might start with embedded vocabulary, embedded phonics, embedded words in their everyday lives to help it immediately make meaning and so that they could practice it. So through all of that, I developed, and again, they just, I can never express my appreciation for how much trust they put in me through this and how much um, assistance they gave. So we began running it and again, just found immense popularity with it. Our volunteers made the most beautiful connections with the clients. It was about as much about deep friendships as it was about language learning. And we found that both the clients and the volunteers treasured that as did
1: we. I've heard so much in what you've said, I have I just kind of wanted to recap it. So, you know, I heard really taking the time to get to know who you're serving and making sure that the program really is designed around them and all of their needs, including the, the needs that stem from resettling and going through the experience that causes someone to become a refugee and also the fact that these are adults and need the language a little bit differently than a child might. And also taking the time to really standardize how the program is running and really training and standardizing the training process for your volunteers so that everybody, the clients and the volunteers, are having a really phenomenal, impactful experience with each other, which certainly must lead into the sustainability because that That will keep people coming back.
2: Absolutely. And that's what we found. And people would bring their friends, um, whole families volunteered in the program, which was one of my favorite things. And sustainability-wise, I will never forget one of the times that our CEO, Padia Nixon, uh, she would, when she could, um, just take turns taking us out to coffee or to lunch and talking about our programs, our roles, how things were going. And I was so excited to tell her about how amazing the English at home program was going, how sometimes at volunteer orientation, we would have 40 people show up (laughs) and um, just how exciting it all was and how well it was working. And she was excited too. But then she said, part of a good program is knowing when to hand it off. And if you have built something that depends on you, you have not built anything at all. And that was very sobering for me, but also an aha moment of she was absolutely right, of course. And so I then began to look at ways which coincided with some movements that were going on within the agency where I eventually took on a departmental managerial role to be able to hand this program so that it didn't depend on me. I had written the curriculum. I had designed the way it worked. I had done all of these things, but could somebody else do it? And so I began formatting that, making sure that they could, that Whatever information lived in my brain was documented and that I conversed with people about it. I showed them how to do it. I shared with them. I had people shadow me so they could see how it was done. And that is exactly what happened. So that within the last, I would say, two years of me working at New American Pathways, I was not directly running the program. It was able to be carried out by other people. I still provided oversight. And then when I left, I knew I was not going to go anywhere because it had grown far beyond me. and had nothing to do with me at that point, which is a bittersweet sort of thing, but also such a proud thing of this is going to keep going. And that wasn't the point all along. It was not, it's not my legacy. It's not anything like that. It's, this is something that our clients enjoy, that our volunteers enjoy, that's really making a difference and it can keep going as it should.
1: Absolutely. And on that really high note, I'm going to change the topic Um, we ask all of our guests before the episodes over an off the map question and that gives listeners an opportunity to meet the person behind the professional so Kelsey you and I are friends and I know you do a lot of running so what run are you gearing up for next
2: Actually, funny enough, I'm gearing up for the Refuge Coffee Run, which is my favorite one. I love 5Ks. And this one is connected with the organization Refuge Coffee out of Clarkston, Georgia. They employ refugees as their baristas and event planners, all of their staff, so that they have a livable wage and job training and then can go on to whatever else they want to pursue. It's also a place of welcome and community. It's called the most welcoming run in the world. So I would love it if you joined me, if this comes out before the (laughs) 5K, but if not next year. Um, And the proceeds go to funding the work to welcome families uh, from other countries into the community and help them on their journey to success in the U.S.
1: I am, as you know, a huge fan of Refuge. I was actually just there last week. (laughs) Kelsey and I used to meet there once a week for breakfast back when lives were simpler and we lived closer together. So, I don't know. I'm not much of a runner. Maybe, Kelsey. Maybe I'll join you for this run. (laughs) Well... Listeners, I want to make sure that you can learn more about New American Pathways and the English at Home program and all the beautiful work that New American Pathways is doing to welcome refugees into our country and into our communities. You can learn more about them at newamericanpathways.org. And since we talked about it, we'll throw up Refuge's website too. I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head, but I will find it and make sure it's on the show notes for you. On a side note, Kelsey and I are recording this a few days after the Taliban has seized control in Afghanistan and many, many people are fleeing the country. New American Pathways, along with a lot of other resettlement agencies here in Georgia and across the U.S., are trying to get ready to welcome as many people as possible into our community. So make sure you get on New American Pathways' website and see how you can help from calling your representatives to helping find homes and apartments. Kelsey, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, I loved it. Thanks so much for having me and for the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, if you were busy and got distracted Googling Refuge's upcoming run and missed those URLs, don't worry. You can always find them on our website along with time-stamped highlights. That's SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can also find strategic planning info if you decide that you are ready to embark on that journey. Again, at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Finally, if you liked today's episode, you might like these. Episode 155, Why Your Nonprofit Needs an Operating Model with Leslie McCrell. And Episode 193, Jumpstart Your Planned Giving Program with Tony Martinetti. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you've gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And before I sign off, I do need to share our disclaimer. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of such counsel, please reach out to a licensed, competent professional and get the advice you need.